0: Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. So I just want to say thank you so much, Michael uh, Limerick, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And before we start, if I can just get you just to further uh, indicate your role as well as um, what is it that you're doing at this particular moment. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, It's an honor to be a part of this. Um, You know, I, I never thought, Um, in my career that I would be doing this when I first started in long-term care in 2016 I thought what a great opportunity to learn about end of life and chronic care management and it's something actually that I've had to become an advocate for um, which I wasn't prepared for but that just tells us sort of the state of affairs in, in our country and in our province but I've been a nurse practitioner since 2008 so for 13 years now um, most of my career has been uh, uh, in an emergency department at a tertiary care center in Winnipeg Manitoba Um, moved to rural Ontario Kenora um, about five years ago Um, and there was many different NP positions at that time for me in long-term care it seemed like the least amount of um, Probably what would be most familiar to me, from working in a hospital to working in a long-term care facility, in terms of the, I should say, and I use air quotations, the business of healthcare, in terms of seeing people and and being surrounded by a team and working in that environment. So I said, you know, this is something that I'll that I'll try and um, um, just see what happens. Um, so now I'm hooked. Um, I, I in in Kenora. I, um, in two different facilities in um, Pinecrest uh, three days a week and Birchwood two days a week. And of course COVID has confused and made all of that complicated. And then my other big part of my role is to um, sitting on the palliative care committee, um, regional palliative care committee, and then advocating for hospice that we were able to implement and start last year, which we are the first of our kind to operate that and run that in long-term care. So I'm doing, 100% long-term care and hospice care Um, and then my role is probably equally as an advocate in this area.
0: For sure thank you so much for that and so if I can get you to just define what is palliative care and end of life as these two both these two terms are used pretty much interchangeably although they mean different things.
1: Yeah I sometimes I, I get that question a lot and I I'm perplexed on why it's it's complicated but we um, I guess because of the environment that I'm in now and, and how we use that language and and you know meeting people um, and families at this time um, it is always a, a new experience for people so you know the palliative care is basically a continuation or a continuum of of care um, to try to increase quality of life and help people live as best they can depending on their Um, terminal illness or or diagnosis. So at that time where, you know, our main focus is on symptom management and, you know, um, there's still uh, an aspect of palliative care that is still um, um, curable care or things that we could possibly fix um, or change uh, or alter in terms of things that happen with End stage disease management or symptomatic acute management if there was an infection. Um, so it's about, you know, um, if you're involved or if you become um, within palliative care, technically or in a perfect world, you're followed by a team and that looks after many aspects of the different types of things that you require, even including spiritual care and psychosocial care. When things are changing um, on that continuum, And, um, when you look at risk benefit of certain treatments and perhaps maybe you're spending more time in bed or more time sleeping, or maybe you're having more time where you're um, unconscious or not eating as much, then you're approaching end of life. So at that point, our goal is, um, when reversal of certain symptoms or disease management is no longer possible, our goal is to optimize that quality of life at the end and control symptoms as best that we can. Um, Lots of people at that point, you know, are concerned and talking about possibly um, difficulty breathing or pain and how that's managed. And we focus um, mostly with that at, um, when people are at end of life. So when someone is palliative, sometimes that can be, you know, we look at the the definition of it. Uh, Sometimes people have years to live when they have a palliative diagnosis. When someone is deemed at end of life, Um, in some worlds that might mean less than six months or less than a month but usually it's when things are becoming a lot closer.
0: Okay thank you so much for that so just to clarify so then that would mean so let's say someone had dementia that would be considered to be as palliative care or deemed as palliative?
1: For sure so a lot of people when they get diagnosed with congestive heart failure or end stage or I shouldn't say end stage I should say um or renal failure or dementia, right? That doesn't mean when people hear the word palliative, they're sort of, well, it would be shocking to hear that. But in terms of it's a disease that um, is going to continue to progress um, and continue to change. um, And at some point uh, because of how possibly increased disability that you would have we need to advocate and start talking about those things right away um, because dementia is a cause of death it is a terminal disease and something that's so important that we talk about right at the onset of that to help people prepare for the future.
0: Thank you that's great and um, so with the family discussions about palliative care and end of life within the long-term care setting how are these discussions initiated so the families are included and they know what is coming and they know the difference between the two?
1: So that's a great question. Um, Just recently in my role as of last week I was talking to another nursing home in Timmins and how we found each other I'm not sure there's always the RNAO uh, advocates out there that are looking at best practice and trying to connect us with things but Um, it needs to be incorporated as a a part of every long-term care facility's uh, palliative care policy and having those conversations. And it's weird to think about why wouldn't we or or why aren't these conversations happening? And I think just because it's so difficult, um, it's not easy. And we assume that many people perhaps would take that role, but if it's not formalized, um, and I think it's probably human nature that, you know, we don't like to talk about Death. It's something that we've never been good at, depending on, um, you know, w- in terms of the evolution of, of how medicine has changed and what we've done. You know, people used to die at home. The family used to take care of people at home. That was a normalized thing. As a young child, you know, you would, um, you would see death. And now, you um, we don't talk about it. Mostly, don't talk about it. I know I'm generalizing, um, and um, we don't see death. We're not a part of that process. And um, for many instances, right when someone passes away, whether it's in the hospital or it's the home, the body's taken out the back door. You know, it's something that's hush hush or not wanting to be advertised. And and really, it's something that we need to. Um, normalize in this experience. I mean, the average lifespan of people that are admitted to long-term care is 18 months. We've got a lot of work to do to prepare people um, and families to talk about how we're going to make this experience as best we can for them and to give them a good death in respecting who that person is and all of their values. So we start that conversation right at the admission process um, we have an admission coordinator that again talks about advanced care planning and is to you know tries to initiate those conversations which aren't easy. Um, the next thing that we do is formally, um, every at the first three months of admission, we have our first care conference um, where there's a lot of information shared there and sometimes it can be pretty heavy. but at that time, you know, I get a good understanding of someone's Uh, illness understanding whether that's the patient or the family and then usually after that meeting um, in a respectful one-on-one way whether that's on the phone or in person right now to gently start to talk about and tease out that information about what are they ready to talk about um, these issues do they understand um, what the diagnosis means and um, and in terms of what that person might have articulated or said earlier, before they came into long-term care, what was important to them in terms of their management and and treatment. So it's, um, again, a process that should be formalized, is formalized, but most often it changes on a regular or on a daily basis, sometimes based on, um, well, and some families aren't prepared to talk about it and that's okay. Um, but when there's a change in condition, it's another opportunity to, to formalize that process again and talk about um, risk-benefit of certain diagnostic tests, if we're going to do things like that, or certain treatments. Um, so mostly, we need to talk about it all the time. It never stops. And the biggest surprise is when they come into long-term care that they haven't had these conversations before. It hasn't happened in family practice, and it hasn't happened in the hospital. And sometimes they've been at the hospital for six to eight months before they've come to us. So there's lots of things that we think that we could do better and that we're working on um, in our community. We're also part of this capacity assessment when we're looking at leaning our uh, palliative care processes and communication. Um, but it would be wonderful, especially in, a, um, in rural settings, if, um, Providers could go between facilities easily, and um, I think there would be benefit if I could leave my place of work and go into the hospital, actually just to have those conversations about preparing for the future and end of life. The psychology is so important for people coming over in their next journey. And it's um, I know mostly that we probably downgrade the, and I'm using air quotations, the care or the level of need that people have as they get older and as they come into long-term care but actually it's more complex. Um, and it requires a huge team of skilled medical and social care um, that we struggle with. You know, I know you're gonna ask me more questions about this, but it's all around funding and human resources and what we value. And I believe it's getting better. And this is the right time with all the things getting better.
0: Oh, thank you so much for that. No, that's great. That is very uh, a holistic type of an approach. And then for for your um, for each staff member that so once somebody is um, admitted into or into long term care, how does now each staff member what is their process in facilitating for the discussion for because I know you mentioned about the care conference that's within the first three months so what would then be the continuum of that conversation by each staff member
1: so um, this is something that I find continues to grow and get better in our facility Um, but when someone is um, condition is changing and they're requiring more care and and or approaching end of life the only way that we really can make sure that we're all on board is to meet with the team. And so whether that's a discussion with the PSWs and the RPNs and the RN, um, and sometimes that's included um, with family again. Um, but again, in just discussion with the the whole team um, because of, to talk about perhaps expected changes or things to watch for or look for. Um, and in terms of how best that we're gonna manage pain, or we're gonna manage shortness of breath, or we're gonna manage end of life secretions, and what each staff member's role is in regards to that. You know, it's a it's long-term care um, has so many people, employs so many people. Um, and sometimes my expectations are, when I talk to a different PSW or a different nurse, that they've done this before that, you know, this is our job, this is what we're good at. And some people actually have never, you know, worked with a dying person or helped in that that aspect. And sometimes because it's a cultural reason, sometimes it's because they're just not confident or they're nervous. And with such a big facility and so many people, you can avoid those cases if you switch with different people or alter um, your workload or your shift of who you're looking after. So it's important to and I was just saying this to the Holman Timmons Timmins that I was talking to last week is I often feel like a death doula instead of a nurse practitioner. I find that I'm, I'm looking for and trying to push staff to say who's approaching end of life, whose PPS score has changed. Who's not, who's not eating, who's pocketing, who's having more pain, who's not sleeping. And then let's get together and talk about how we can, deprescribe, change medications, change our approach, consider again, having the family in and, and talking about changing what we're doing because it only improves their symptom management and helps them as they're changing. So we all have a, a really important role in what we're doing. And I know you're gonna ask me questions later about the evolution of that role, but um, to do it as holistic as possible is, is what's uh, key, especially um, when I find Treating someone at end of life isn't necessarily that complicated, but the psychosocial aspect of what that family requires and doing that well and helping people is the most complex part of this job that um, I find that we all need um, help in in working with each other to know how to say the right things and ask the right questions and support people as they change, it's not not easy. It always pushes you to think about your own mortality. And I think that's why healthcare professionals, staff, probably want to avoid the conversation. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy, um, but that's why it requires uh, thoughtful, um, skilled people in this area to do this type of work.
0: No, that's great. Cause I, I'm really glad that you mentioned about the mental state of some people like the the staff that are working in it because not everybody is suited or can handle uh, working in this type of whether it's palliative care end of life they can't handle that so how is it that you're providing the I guess the best care and the resources available to a lot of these staff members and you know do they feel supported um, working in this type of because it can be overwhelming or a bit depressing so to speak but you know how do you um you know and your facility be able to handle that
1: right so that is a that is a difficult question it's um you know i think it's a lot of times so if I just look at the institution or the facility and um, I like to use that word I think an inst- the word institution is a dirty word and that's why I use it all the time because you know we're forcing people into institutionalized care based on the resources that we have it's sort of the best thing that we can do right now but it's not by far the um, what's ideal or um, what's optimal um, you know there's what people require at end of life care. I think, you know, one of the most important things in that role is um, spiritual care and emotional care and the psychosocial care that is the most difficult that um, care to provide in terms of, so when you're a PSW and you go to school, what are your, what are you being trained to do when you're an RPN or an RN going to school? What are you trained to do? And then I look at my role and you know, in, in my education doing my nurse practitioner, there was no, I, I didn't uh, formally learn any palliative care or have any palliative care rotations. And many of my physician colleagues would have the same type of education. So it's something that we experience, uh, experientially, we learn and pick up as we're depending on the area that we're working in. But to, to do this role, especially as being a maid provider and not having... The psychosocial support they are present for the family when they're dying and even i say is equally as important for the staff um, i in this aspect um, so i'll tell you a personal story um, when i was working in intensive care and in um, emergency my role was to prevent death my role was as part of a code team and i saw a lot of trauma and every time that we were involved or I was involved in a, in a code or a situation where people were dying we do everything we can to stop that person from dying. I mean, that was our, that was our goal. That was our mission. Um, and it was really hard. Um, I had to separate myself and take some time off because of the issues that I had in, in dealing with that, uh, with that role I needed, um, some psychosocial support and I needed to talk to people because it just wasn't normal. Um, the experiences that I saw sort of surrounding that coming now and working in, in palliative care and in long-term care, you know, my wife's the first person to say to me, you know, you got to be really careful. You are in an environment where you were surrounded by lots of death and dying. And that was really difficult. And um, there were aspects of that, that I didn't do well um, and really struggled. Um, but in this case, Um, it is a normal process and something that we need to support each other through and is an expected process, which makes it a lot different. But I still see that I need someone at the end of the day to talk about the experiences that I've seen or some of the cases that I've seen um, because you are giving 100% of your energies to make it go as best as possible and not necessarily in terms of Helping that a person with symptom management as they're dying, but helping helping that family cope and understand and know that it's okay um, is has a, has an impact. So we operate here without um, uh, social work. I think most long-term care facilities in the province, depending on where you are, don't have spiritual care or don't have social work. And I find that when you are admitting your entire population that has got approximately a lifespan of 18 months and all of the major changes that they're going to go through and all of the support that they need, I think it is bizarre um, that this area isn't supported more in that way when that's such a major and integral part of what we need at this stage of our life um, is that psychosocial support. And I think our most important people that could be part of our team is – the spiritual care component of that and the social work uh, component of that, even for the staff debrief, even to support people as we're looking after people that are dying. I think we totally overlook that um, in palliative care, and especially in long-term care. It's just you know, part of the job is what maybe your manager would say or when you were going to school, it's just what we do, um, but it's not normal um, to do this every day. And so it's to be supported and to do it um, well, um, it's important that we have all of those uh, supports in place for us and can, you know, we have to be a healthy, strong team in order to look after um, the people in this environment that we're trying to help.
0: No, that it definitely is not, um, as you say, normal. And going, like the next couple of questions will be definitely expanding on what you've just said. So. We'll go with this one first is, so when there is someone that does pass away, how, it, what are the services that are able to support that particular staff member? Do Is it automatic or do they have to seek that to, to be able to get the support that they need?
1: Um, so it's not automatic. Um, I believe before I started here, there was a formal process where once a month they had um, a service um in one of the uh auditoriums here um just a, um um when a, a, a local priest would come in and, and um state the names of the people that died and, and give people some closure which again would be uh, is a great idea and something that would really help um, with helping um in terms of uh letting go and, and formalizing and normalizing that process Um, They always have the support of, you know, their human resource manager and the supports that you have on on paper in terms of if you needed um, support for um, uh, counseling, if that's something that you needed, but mostly the process is informal. Um, One of the most amazing things that I heard at a a palliative care conference in Winnipeg a couple years ago was one of the homes in rural Manitoba at the time was doing what they call a, a code angel um, and it was um, or it's probably easier to understand in terms of an honor guard so we over the last couple of years have when people die we announce it overhead and we uh, encourage residents and staff to assemble at the front door and line the hallway on either side and we wait for the funeral home to go down into the room and we use a special uh, blanket that um, our uh, quilting group in Kenora has made that we cover the body with and then the funeral home instead of going out the back door or the side door goes out the front door and goes out the front door with everyone that's there that can say goodbye and it's something that is free Something that is simple, something that took almost no effort to organize and had such huge impact on the staff just to say goodbye. And something that we never thought of either is their table mates or the people that are, you know that are across the hall from that room or just one day they're there and the next day they're not there. They're not there. They they see that and they don't really talk about it because they don't know how. Um, the psychology, I think, is fascinating, depending on sort of maybe the level of dementia you have or why you're in long-term care, but there's many people here that see all these people dying around them and us looking after uh, people that are sick and dying um, and then for them to say goodbye, to help them as they're surrounded by this, um, I find has been huge in what we've done. Um, And I'm so thankful that it's these little things that you pick up in each of these conferences that you go to and people talking about their experiences and things that they've done that um, make such a a huge difference in in what we're doing. But again, the psychology of just being able to say goodbye um, is hugely helpful for people. And it can be really, um, well, it is always an um, emotional, you know, there's the business part of you, the healthcare part of you that, you know, is stoic and you're doing your job and you have to do it well. And you're seeing, you know, I see between two homes, 230 people a day that are all sort of going through the same thing. But when you have that chance to sit and reflect and say, all right, that is a, that is a husband or a wife or a grandfather or a grandmother and, um, was a retired police chief. And you can normalize that person in terms of all the experiences and things that they had. It's sad and it's hard and it just helps you to, uh, say goodbye and we need to do those things too.
0: Because I can imagine it must give everybody, not just only staff, but the residents as well, some piece of closure and as well some acknowledgement that their person that is down the hall, they don't see. And now I'm open enough to be able to talk about it or we can be able to discuss it as opposed to it being hush-hush type of thing in that type of environment and seen as a scary thing as opposed to that is just, I wouldn't say this is a normal process, but at least more comforting to be able to acknowledge that person. And then, because you mentioned it as well about spiritual care. So if you can just speak a little bit more about the importance of spiritual care for the person that's deemed as palliative and as well for the family and the staff caring for them.
1: For sure. Well, um, and I'm not speaking for everyone, um, because whether it's just Um, whatever that means for that person um, in terms of that that human connection or supporting people through that but when you have the comfort that spiritual care is able to provide and so I'll just use you know the the example of you know we had a catholic priest come in yesterday for one of our patients that's approaching end of life um, and the family being present and for them to have um Uh, last rites or just that prayer that time to reflect is is just so helpful in so many ways to help people um um in the letting go process um and doing the things that right the the, I'll, i'll circle back to you know what makes this so scary and so difficult and so complex uh for people again because you're it's the existential part of it, the part of, you know, it's not just the person that's dying, but it's that they've always been there for you. And then it forces you to think of other people in your family and yourself. And that's probably the hardest thing. Although the, our focus and our effort is on the patient, so much more of it to help that person die well. And in that environment, where one feels supported, just as equally as important is the family that's going through it or the power of attorney or substitute decision maker or whoever it is in that room and that spiritual care you know that person is in lots of ways already unconscious right and but the impact that that it has on the family um to have that for them is monumental um i when i have the opportunity to speak to clergy or spiritual staff um and especially when we were instituting and and operating our hospice it's one of the you know putting that number uh that call sheet together those numbers and to say you know how could you support us and and you know can we call you on a regular basis for these things that community is so um strong and supportive in that way it's funny that I even have to say to them you know would you support us with hospice and can you come here and help with families I mean they're they're so excited to be involved in and in doing this. You know, some long-term care facilities are fortunate to have um, full-time uh, clergy staff. When I worked in a tertiary care center, you had a whole spiritual care department. Um, and when I was working in intensive care at the time, if we were going to stop care or uh, extubate someone or turn off certain uh, life-sustaining um, medications that were supporting heart rate and blood pressure to have that spiritual care team there. I was almost a step back from my role and just let it happen because of how they could facilitate and, and bring them through and talk about um, how it's, it's, it's okay. And this is normal. And we're, we're doing all the right things. It was amazing uh, at the time for me to see that experience. And now I'm on the other end of it. Um, but I feel, to make this um, a sacred space. Again, if you look at our Aboriginal community um, and the system that they've had to go through and the mistrust of the system, to know that our hospice is um, has an elder that comes between patients to um, sanctify it again is huge and something that we never thought about. Those little pieces that make it Okay and comfortable for people to die in, especially for the families to understand that um, is integral. So we invite that team um, to be part of our palliative care committee um, to have to have those communication and that, that talk and open dialogue with the elders to help support this community as much as we can. Because it's especially not easy for um, our Aboriginal families that I find have a. Uh, a great deal of angst at end of life for all of their uh, cultural reasons and beliefs. And they need, I find 10 times more support at end of life in terms of spiritual care um, and making that uh, the number one priority in helping to achieve um, that good death or that comfortable death or that good feeling that they've been taken care of. Not so much the symptom management, it's that person that's there to help them, um, in the journey from one life to the
0: next. Thank you for that. And so the next question we'll deal with in terms of the specialized training that's required for both the RPNs and the PSWs to work uh, with, with individuals who are deemed as palliative. Do you are you, Are those formal or those informal that they're provided at the long-term care facility?
1: So I would say a bit of both. I know that in the PSW program um, at um, Kenora, anyways, that I've been asked to speak to um, whether it's the the PSW group in their uh, formal uh, school setting or the um, RPN group at the college in their uh, formal setting to talk about end of life care and management and the role of the team and what has to happen. So I know that formally that is, in everyone's program um, in terms of what I then do to talk to um, the colleges and in, in this aspect is to say you know we need especially in terms of even hospice care and what works great in a teaching hospital which isn't there um, when as soon as you go to a, a rural or a urban setting is the students and that team of people that are, are learning and going through the process and, 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 and having that chance to be with someone that's dying before they start work or having that opportunity to do those rotations um, because it's not a robust part of anyone's education. You know, I'm fortunate that I've got um, a nurse practitioner student from the University of Athabasca that's with me right now, and they have to do a formal geriatric placement. And what she is going to get experience at is the death and dying piece and looking at people in hospice and looking at people at end of life that she would not have. Uh, normally in this um, in this role so it's um, it's an enlightening um, and it's a part that of your role when especially when you're whether you're in family practice because you're doing family medicine or you're an all-ages family practice nurse practitioner um, it's in terms of the continuity of care it's a piece that um, isn't robust and we admit that, and that's been shown in the evidence and shown in the reviews that that needs to be changed. And even in terms of specialized palliative care education, what's offered in a limited amount of medical schools. Um, you know, there are though great uh, courses and things that you can do outside of school that um, um, can be formalized as a part of the education when you start working in different places. But for example, your leak training, or learning essential approaches to palliative care is, and what I say to anyone that will listen that wants to take more um, training uh, with palliative care is that it's to, uh, what ACLS is to emerge, leap is to palliative care in terms of your um, practical situations that you go over, end of life management, symptomatic management, and then the piece of, um, the family and spiritual care and just all of the important things that um, you need to learn, you need to talk about, and that you are educated on and tested on um, is important. And we're doing this more and more. Um, I advocated it for an our home and we've had really good uptake and many healthcare professionals, including PSWs, taking um, their LEAP training. Um, so it seems to be as an adjunct or add-on course to uh, what you're already doing, I find it's the best thing out there that you can do to help enhance your palliative care education. I know we've got surge training. So those are the modules that staff are doing in long-term care that, you know, there are modules on palliative care. It's just sometimes the format and learning through that when there's a video on and you're answering some questions isn't uh, um, as impactful. Um, So, it's something that I find continues to grow and something that can, that we continue to have to um, promote and make better um, in terms of even orientating new people um, that are coming to work in long-term care about, you know, one of their main roles and and things that's going to be probably the most difficult for them is to work with people as they're approaching end of life and what that means. Um, So there's a lot of, at the bedside education um, that happens or spontaneous um, education that happens um, as things come up. Um, but that's something that I relished in learning in a teaching hospital um, and things that I was got to be a part of and, and got to continue to do and that I find that i still try to um, continue those same things here in long-term care.
0: No, well, thank you for that. and. With some of those points that we just mentioned, do you think that that, in your opinion, is there enough staff or those would be hindrance or advantages for more staff to then go into palliative care?
1: So um, without a doubt, if COVID hasn't shown exactly what long-term care is prepared for and what they can deal with and what, um, um, what is needed, Um, I I can't understand what is more uh, glaringly evident than our lack of resources that we have uh, in long-term care. Um, It still surprises me, you know, at the beginning of the outbreak, for example, when you heard our Premier talk about, you know, we figured it out. Long-term care needs more beds, they need more air conditioning, we need to make more spots so we can get more people in there. And at that time, it was like, no. That's not what we need. We need, we need to fix the staffing ratio. You know, if you were a nurse working in a hospital, you have approximately one to six um, patient ratio. Well, you come into long-term care and you've got a one to 30 ratio, and then your focus is palliative care. And then you add hospice to the mix and you look at the needs and the time that is required to spend with that patient and that family at end of life and how, uh, how heavy the work is in long-term care because of the acute on chronic patient management and the needs of that patient where on your floor, maybe 90% of those people need a lift to get them mobilized and to get them changed, right? It's, it's we, we need more staff to make that work. So making newer facilities, bigger, shinier facilities, facilities with better air conditioning Yes, that is something that we need. Right now, we need more money um, because of um, to hire, to to fix our human resources crisis in long-term care, which would help immensely with the type of care that people get in the end. I mean, the burnout is exceptional for our PSW group. It's an unsafe environment for them. The amount of physical labor that they have to do the amount of medications that have to be distributed with our nursing staff, it's a really difficult place uh, for that. So um, yeah, the the human resource pieces is, is what I was assuming and still am assuming is going to be fixed and is going to happen by the end of this crisis. But then I don't know. I don't know. I don't hear those conversations anymore. And it seems that you know, we're quick to forget about these uh, these things, even though some expert uh, or geriatrician is in front of CBC almost every day talking about the crisis of long-term care. And we still are just hoping, well, let's just get everyone vaccinated and that's going to make the problem go away, which is not going to make the problem go away. We need more people. Um We need to change the education that people are getting in here. um, And we need to up the specialty services that people get in long-term care because they don't need less services, they need more uh, services. And we have to make those working conditions optimal for people because I don't know why we don't understand that, and I I hate using this word or hate using this phrase because it's so cliche, but we're all gonna die and most of us are going to go through long-term care and the fact that we're trying to fix problems in 2021 to make this a service uh, to make sure that we get all the things that we need is something that floors me in my role in healthcare and trying to be an advocate for this. This should be the easiest uh, area of healthcare to find that support, to find those dollars, to help people as they transition in the most difficult part of their life, when they're dying and it's something because we are scared to talk about because it's human nature. Um, but the fact that we don't support it because of that, I find is another um, really interesting study in human nature that we continue to try to push through. Um, it should be the red carpet treatment. It should be, you know, you walk into long-term care and you know it should be crystalline chandeliers there should be no uh, uh, um, expense um, and I'm embellishing a little bit but in, just in terms of, of, of helping people and the needs that we need um, it shouldn't be something that we need to be fundraising for or begging for money because we're not given the same types of supports that uh, everyone else is is given in this area. So it's, it's hugely disappointing in that way and upsetting because you see um, what happens as you're looking after these people and what the staff have to go through. So as long as we can keep pushing and we get in front of our member of parliament here and continue to push these issues. So I hope that we can still just continue to in light of all the things that are happening, but it's still a struggle. And something that we still have to advocate for and push for um, is advocacy for our people that are approaching end of life.
0: I definitely agree with you on that because that definitely still needs to be on the conversation piece and on the table and still going forward to get these resolutions done. So during this pandemic, with COVID-19 in terms of leveraging the technologies in long-term care so families can partake in palliative and in hospice uh, during this time uh, they approached in terms of end of life because there was the the lockout and I'm sure some facilities are still um, you know impacted by that uh, however with that what what, uh, you know, can, what can you think, what do you think that we should be still be able to leverage through all, a lot of these virtual platforms, even if we can, uh, due to the, the lockout?
1: Um, so I think um, the lockout has forced us to use technology that we really haven't used before. And I find has enhanced a lot of things. So if I just, let's, I'm going to um, just start with myself, for example, in terms of The ability to reach out to other colleagues, other specialties, and to access other education and things that normally you you weren't able to access because for me in our community where I'm two hours um, or an hour from the border from Manitoba, um, where um, most of my uh, huge committee meetings or conferences are in Toronto, that would require me to take time off work to Fly to Toronto, and I've been able to, as a in my role, to attend exponential and actually having to say no to certain things because of how I can access education and all of these different conferences. It's been an incredible year uh, for education in terms of this. So the spinoff then has been because this is something that has um, been has made a, uh, it a lot easier in a lot of the things that we're doing. We You know, our program here is going room to room with iPads, and we've encouraged families to buy iPads so that we can have those virtual visits between family and and caregivers. But as much as you can make the technology robust um, and virtual platforms robust in long-term care, you still need the human resources part to make it operate because you've got people in their 80s and 90s with various stage of disease that can't operate an ipad they can't operate a telephone so it's really tricky it's it's a great idea and it's still a great thought that we've enhanced the contact between um caregivers and family but it still needs someone to be there to facilitate it and with like for example the 116 people under this roof it's really tricky so they're not able to do a lot of that during the day because of um um how much it needs to make it work. It would be interesting to see if it would be a part of this bill three, the platform that's coming uh, forward in terms of what are the priority of the, uh, our government is in terms of enhancing um, palliative care. If that's something, if that's a piece that needs to be integrated into that to help us with that. I mean, I think it would make a huge difference for, Right, my palliative and nurse practitioner that's working in the community right now that based on um, her organization that she works, through or works for has to work from home. So she is doing 100% of her palliative care visits on the phone, which is immensely or hugely difficult. You know, maybe in terms of if you are deemed palliative and you have got home care coming to you, does that mean that we also support you with the technology? And we support you with those platforms and and people get those iPads so they can communicate better with family and, and maybe it helps with that assessment piece and talking to people at end of life. How do you enhance virtual care and long-term care where we've got the lowest budget of anyone in healthcare to add something as robust as this? You know, I think the sky's the limit and I think there's endless opportunity with this and I'm really excited about it, but it's something that... Um, you know, we just continue to invest in and put money in. And again, it's not easy. Um, It doesn't take away that person to make that work. We still need the human resources to make the technology uh, be able to function and operate. Um, Unless every new build and every new room comes with all of this technology that's built into it already, but that would be quite a facility.
0: Definitely, it would be. And uh, we'll only see how things will still continue um, as this uh, pandemic continues onwards and see what the future will bring with what um, technologies will be supported in long-term care sector. Now, with the passing of Bill 3, the Compassionate Care Act, do you see that as being as an enhancement to what is already existing for long-term care? Because that's supposed to allow for everyone to have access to palliative care.
1: So I'm always going to look at this as a glass half full, and I'm I'm thrilled that they passed this act. I'm perplexed on why we have to pass an act like this in 2021, but again, this is this is wonderful, and I have to uh, um, um, commend the government for doing this and putting this forward. I mean, how I I think you know it's one thing to. Um, implement or state that, um, just for example, with how heavy um, the policies, procedures, the, um, the technicalities of working in long-term care and how it's governed, it's so heavy that way. So what I'm hoping that Bill 3 doesn't do is just again add another layer, layer of things that long-term care is expected or has to do. One of the things that I think Bill three could be an immense part of is changing the education out there and supporting in terms of the rotations that um, every, um, whether that's in medicine or nursing or the PSW group, what's expected in that education, how it's formalized and the time um, that it's given, I think would be a missed opportunity if that bill didn't affect what we're doing in all of our schools in this province and uh, hopefully uh, in Canada but again I called um, I have a really good relationship with the school uh, with the University of Manitoba and I called one of the uh, professors yesterday and I said so where is it in the ed- in the curriculum that you're discussing Made, and he said so that's a good point why don't I pencil you in and you can come and do a talk on made?" and I'm like Exactly. So these are one of the things that, you know, how do you formally approach each of these schools to say, what are you doing and how are you doing this? But it's another thing when the government is saying, this is a priority and this is what we have to do and we have to change it. And so I think this is, will happen faster because of it. If they're, and part of that mandate is looking at education, but I think that's probably one of the biggest uh, things that they could do to enhance that or to push that uh, to make that better. You know, I I don't want to speak for my physician colleagues, but it's not easy uh, for the things that they are doing in terms of the business of being in family practice and hiring staff and having overhead and seeing patients uh, in terms of the amount of patients that they're trying to do and what they're they're doing to trying to um, run a business is what people aren't prepared for when they graduate from medical school. And when um, the money around looking after hospice and end-of-life patients and palliative care isn't the same as looking after other people, it has an effect, right? So I could say, well, this is fantastic. This is another great role for nurse practitioners. But there are discrepancies in the system. And I don't know why it's valued differently and why we put a price on – what people can bill for or the care that people would get, but it's definitely a barrier. It's not easy. You can't run and see, you know, 10 end of life patients in in an hour and be able to bill for that. It takes time. It takes um, conscious effort to be with that person and a palliative care visit isn't easy. So I find it's a barrier because it takes away for and is difficult for, Um, different providers to do that, unless that is their passion, right? So now we're talking about two very different things, right? Still, you look at the ability for, and again, I'm talking about the business of healthcare, you know, I can't go leave my facility and see people in the community um, to provide that palliative care or those maid services because it's something I have to volunteer for in my role. NPs can't bill. So again, there's a huge barrier where there's a need that NPs would be willing to see people outside of the context of hospital clinic and long-term care, but we don't have the ability to do it. So those are big things that could help, um, especially in places that um, like rural Ontario or um, Northern Ontario and all of these things. We have to be creative to make sure we get all these people that access and hopefully that bill can push those things forward and open up new opportunities for people to um, wanna deliver palliative care and get more involved in palliative care because it's supported um, and because there's that avenue to do it. Right now there's not that avenue or and or the avenue that exists um, isn't supported very well, Um, right? Ideally, everyone should be able to die at home or die where they want to die right? And it's, you know, you just look again at what we can provide or help people with, with their home care services. You know, if that's something that, you know, we could fix just that piece alone um, would make a immense difference. So um, again, it's really tricky. I'm really excited that we've got hospice up and running in Kenora and really happy that we can do this in long-term care and make it happen, but it shouldn't be in long-term care. It shouldn't be at the hospital. It should be in that person's home, or in its own community setting, and run by the community uh, to make that work, and hopefully that um, that bill can also address where funding goes and um, and how it's supported in that way, because we know that it's um, it's not it's the it's a drop in the bucket in terms of what the services that we're um, uh, getting from the ministry. I mean for example, and I'll stop talking. You know, $105,000 a year is given to us to operate a hospice bed. Well, uh, that is fantastic. Um, But to operate a bed, um, even to staff a bed by one RPN around the clock, 365 days a year, costs about $350,000 to hire one RPN to look after a hospice patient, right? And when we've got a 30 to one ratio, it doesn't take into account the cleaning services, the food, the bed space, everything else it takes to, you know, we're not even talking about adding a PSW to the group or the provider, the NP or GP that's looking after that patient. So how do we make it, how do we make it work? How do we have all that specialized care and and give all those people those services that they need and that they deserve at end of life when we, we don't fund it? I'm not, that's something that's beyond my pay scale. It's something I do do not understand because we will all go through this process in what we are funding right now and how we are staffing it right now. So we need to fix it for the people that are going through it and for our families. But as selfish as I I mean this, we need to fix it for us right now. We're going to go through this process. I don't know why it's not a seamless machine right now.
0: I couldn't agree with you uh, more because honestly, I hope that uh, with this bill being passed, that it's part of the discussion for entirely with for the whole re-imaging of long-term care. So I really do do hope because it really needs to be on there. And you made some other points about MAID, which is the medically assisted in dying, in the in the fact that you cannot bill OHIP for it and you cannot charge for MAID services outside of your employment. So... How does that get then built into, let's say, made into your services? Does it has to be part of your job description in order for you to be able to um, service that?
1: Um, so that's a really that's a really good question. And so I'll I'll speak about my community just just briefly. So um, there is um, some really great. Um, uh, colleagues that I've been able to learn from um, um, in terms of medical assistance and dying and the, the, the process and, and just to how I've learned from them and what it takes to, um, to do this. Um, it is, was one of the heaviest things for sure in my career that I've done and one of the things that Um, I feel is one of the most important part of my jobs now um, as I can honor that person and respect that person when death is in their imminent future and helping them in terms of it being, which I believe, which might be a scandalous thing to say, an extension of palliative care. Um, But when I see people that are approaching end of life that can't swallow anymore or can't breathe Um, and are seeing themselves pass away and that suffering that they're going through, that we are forcing them to articulate to us to see if they would be a candidate to have a procedure like this. It seems weird, Um, but it's for them to empower people to have control of what is imminent and what is inevitable and for the living funerals that have developed because of it, that I've been a part of, of people saying goodbye to their families and families, you know, instead of getting up at a funeral and saying the things that they would want to say about this person, that they're doing it right in front of them at that moment when they've got their kids in the bed, the dogs in the bed, the, um, um, one of the craziest things that I've ever been a part of was, um, the daughter was in uh, the patient's bed at uh, before I was um, going to provide MAID. And she had those that stupid little storybook, The Night Before Christmas, where you can record the kids' voices on. She did that with the grandkids and read that, did that with uh, uh, the person as I was doing the procedure. It was so beautiful. It was so heavy. Um, and it comes back to the point of, this is why we need psychology and this is why we need this help because of how uh, intense it is. Um, But so my role um, that I'm able to provide and do this and I'm compensated for it. And and I I hate using these words because it sounds so selfish, but when people need it in long-term care and have the capacity and can do it, I do this for people in long-term care. In the community, to help the community, I was going after hours and on weekends to help people have made at home and so why am i doing this well because it's it's not easy to do made in someone's house Um, it it's not a it's not a quick procedure it's not a it's not something that takes just a couple minutes out of your time to do it in a in the thoughtful way of all of the things that are required when essentially maybe it's you with another nurse or another nurse practitioner, not a robust team of people that are around you, it's it's not easy. And I understand why my uh, colleagues in the community struggle with doing made in people's homes, because, well, when you're doing it in the hospital, and even when I'm doing it in long-term care, I'm surrounded by a team of professionals. There is, whether I'm in the room or I'm not in the room, or I've done the procedure or I haven't done the procedure, there's this people that there's they're already around them, the PSW that's speaking and helping with the family, it's the nurses, and plus or minus, if you're in the hospital, social work that's there. You need so many people to be there to, to make it happen and to make it work in that thoughtful process. And when you're in someone's home, it is different, right? You are mostly doing all of these roles by yourself um, and it takes time. Um, and so again, Mo, it's more desirable for MAID providers to have this done under these roofs where you have all these resources, but I'm passionate about palliative care and I'm passionate about MAID. And if they wanted it at home, they should be able to have it at home. So I was just making that my, my mandate that I was going to do this in this community and help do that. But over the past couple of years, I've burnt out. Um, it's not, it's not easy. And what I'm doing is band-aiding the system doing this on my own time, um, to honor and respect people to make it work. But there's a gap in the system that I haven't improved. Um, and so I continue to try to, to work with the community to try to support that and help people to die at home, but until they're going to also allow NPs to bill, um, or make the dip billing process different, or make the team that is able to accompany MAID providers to those homes to do that well and thoughtfully needs to change. Um, it's, I, felt, I feel like it's done mostly because it's an emergency situation of, the, of people that possibly could be losing capacity and to have all these people set up, nurses to put in IVs, pharmacy to get those medications in a timely fashion, to have the psychology there that's present, uh, just everything that's involved, it's so complex that um, I believe is what makes most people not want to be involved in medical assistance and dying or or be a part of it. You know, you could be a conscientious objector for many reasons, but just that piece alone in terms of trying to pull it off and, and what's available to you is, you know, it's really tricky. I never thought in my career that this would be a, such a, a big part of um, my role um, and something that I would have to advocate for. Um, but again, it if this is what is most important and what I can do to improve the system, shed light on the system and make things better, um, then it's the things that help me sleep the best at night in terms of, of what I'm able to do in my role.
0: So thank you for that, Michael, because is now with MAID, is that one of those things where it is, in especially in long-term care, is that one of the processes that are defined pre-before for everyone? So that is, let's say, on the electronic health record. So people would know that that would be active or they can take advantage of that
1: so that's it that's a little bit tricky because yeah. it's something that you know lots of um lots of hospitals and homes don't want to advertise because of their
0: a lot you have you ever thought about you know
1: we can't really promote which again is just It seems odd, but um, I find in long-term care, it's not so complex because we know right away the people that are coming in here that have that capacity because it's not as often. Um, There's not many people that are eligible for made based on the current law that come in here. And those that are um, families for the most part based on how much attention Um, and how how mainstream made is is becoming and how it's in the media are usually quick to approach me to say, we've talked about this, or this was their opinion at the time, or it does come up usually, or it can come up with a, a change of condition when families are talking about it. You know, families I find are wanting to talk about it anyways because they see this advanced dementia and they say they would have wanted this and talked about this beforehand but now they're not eligible right you know is the answer that i get and it's something that you know part of that education piece that we have to give to um to people just in terms of that process but formally it's not a checkbox for us that we have in our admissions process that that is something that we've discussed and that we've talked about Um, but um because it's I don't know thoughtfully the best place to, t- to have that. It's so overwhelming when people are going from community or hospital to long term care. And on the admissions process, when the honest to God, when sometimes maybe the most important thing the family's trying to figure out is their cable package, that also now you're talking about, you know, have we talked about medical assistance and dying? It's just, it's just so much to deal with. So, but it is something that it does get teased out within the first few weeks to few months of people being in long-term care, but so often for so many of these things, it's just timing and doing it in the most thoughtful process uh, sometimes of just when that those opportunities come up. We used to overload people in their first care conference or their initial care conference at three months and you know, I would talk about frailty and the PPS score, um, the surprise question and just all of those things. And, you know, people are just, you know, accepting the fact that their their loved one is stable in long term care and they're able to visit them and things are working. And it's it's not the time to start talking about death and dying. It's always a good time and it's always good to bring up those conversations. But sometimes you just have to be really um respectful and tasteful when you have them and when you bring them up and when people are are ready to have them and that's a a constantly moving target and that's what I was talking about other um, long-term care facilities last week was you know they were saying to me well we we've got this box and we need to check it off we need to know where we need to put this box and I'm like excellent point but in order to make it in order for people to accept that that box is going to be it's got to move all over the place. It's not something that just goes at this time because it's uh, it can be really offensive to bring up death and dying with you know different families, um, depending on the timing of things. And so you just have to do it uh, um, as carefully and as compassionately as you can. If yeah, that makes I, sense.
0: No, no, definitely. That definitely makes sense, absolutely. And then with the Participatory Action Research, the PAR method that's used, um, would you would you be able to indicate like what the best the benefits would be and the lessons learned from using this type of a method?
1: So in terms of eliciting social change or that experience that's learned with this method from um, engaging the staff that are going through this work and observing what they're doing and asking them for their input in terms of, um, what's most beneficial or what would be most helpful. For example, the, like the example that you used in the question in terms of the PSW role, um, and how task orientated it is and how we use them, um, uh, or in terms of their job description and what they're doing in long-term care and what they're not doing in long-term care. So maybe it's easiest to answer this question in terms of what and I won't just use the PSW, but I'll just use the healthcare staff and long-term care in general. What we're not doing is the things that aren't intuitive or don't seem intuitive in terms of the dementia care piece, the piece that just involves the non-pharmacological piece of working with people and learning about those people and doing those activities that um, help with those, um, the day-to-day, boredom that happens in long-term care, the agitation and aggression that can happen with dementia, and the things that, the non-pharmacological interventions that can help people to promote and give them the best quality of life. And it's the same at end-of-life care. You know, our PSWs know that, right, they're turning patients, they're doing mouth care, they're toileting, or they're changing people, and they're in and out of that room, heads down, doing that task, Um, and coming back out right where there's a missed opportunity there's a missed opportunity for the for psws and for the rpns that are going in there to do these tasks or to give these medications to have you know those thoughtful conversations with people to say hey how are you doing and how can i help you through this and what can make this better for you and it's the social interaction part the part that isn't isn't um provided in any task that they would do the humanistic part that we're not doing and it's probably the hardest piece to maybe um, teach or to incorporate in that type of education because what does it look like and what does it mean and I didn't sign up for this you know I'm not here to talk to help people when they are dying or when people have you know dementia to help them in this process of you know of when they're when they're aggressive or when they're agitated you know my job is to Um, is to get them in the tub and get them out of the tub and I need someone to give me a medication because they have to they're yelling at me or they're having pain or something's different you know we just have to get away from using medication to manage people and the and it goes right back to the human resources aspect of that you know our 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 gaze is to the ground, our boots are to the ground. We're running to do those tasks because in long-term care, they've got to get 30 people up before eight o'clock in the morning because the ministry mandates that they're in the dining room at a certain time. And then we give them all these medications at a certain time. And so what happens is we've got people that suffer because of that, because we're doing things to people that they don't want to experience that quickly. Maybe the time or the process it would take to get someone thoughtfully out of bed that has dementia, that doesn't understand what's going on, and the medications we use to try to sedate people to wake them up so we can get them dressed, so we can get them fed when we're trying to respect and honor the person and what's happening at the end of their life. It's a real machine of moving people through um, an institution because it's institutionalized care, and this is where we fail Uh, The whole system. So in terms of different models, um, and I'll just use butterfly care, for example, that's out there and being used in different places. Um, But that thoughtful process of taking the institution out of out of care and doing things, learning truly about these people and what they need at these times. and helping them in the most robust, non-pharmacological ways that we can is what we need to do to give people better quality. Um, And so it's difficult because it takes time. It takes huge investment. Um, It takes a lot of support. Um, And it's easy to say, you know, this is your job. This is what you do. Just try to flip that or spin that takes a lot of effort, but with advocacy and with trying to really, it is, the best evidence thing that we could do um, to support people. It's just a matter of having the right people on your team. And I feel like we've got that here, which is really lucky. And I wish we could do it right now or yesterday, but it's a, it's a process that is slow to unfold, but it is something that as long as you're passionate about those things um, and really invested in the people that you're working with in wanting them to um, enjoy work, and to give 100% of what they can do um, in this job, it can't be something that we, um, we can't create a hierarchical system here. Um, We can't um, not use um, different people in the healthcare system in terms of uh, accessing the robust information that they have on what works and what doesn't and what's helpful and why we, you know, essentially eliminate entire groups of Healthcare individuals on what would work best. How would we? What should we do in this situation? And how could we make this better? Um, again, it's um, all about how we communicate and how we support that team. Um, and there's endless ways of doing that. But um, um, feedback with our with in terms of everyone that's on that team and in that role is probably the most important thing, um, the most respectful thing, the most holistic thing. Um, and it's free and there's tons of benefit and it probably doesn't have to change much in terms of what our role is. It's just a matter of of teaching um, and being present and trying to um, just encapsulate those things and all the care that we do. Um, I wish it's something that right just provincially or nationally this is what care meant in long-term care and this is how we went about it and it was scripted and this is what it meant you got the same consistent care no matter where you went but that is so far from the truth that it uh, um, it's overwhelming and it seems like every time we try to improve working conditions or palliative care end-of-life care or dementia care and long-term care it's like a grassroots movement again because it's something that's not funded poorly human resourced and the education, right, for the amount of work and responsibility that PSWs have to go through, I can't remember. Is it a three-month course?
0: It's depending on if they take it uh, privately. It could be a six-month course uh, for them, up to two years, depending on where they take it.
1: Right. Um, so, in terms of providing ninety-five percent of the workload of what some with what, what they're doing in long-term care, right? It's just there's so much more that we can invest in um, in this group because they do so much good work and so much of the work so how do we support each other when we're doing it again hopefully um, this bill will shed some light on those things in terms of um, supporting everyone um, in long-term care
0: no thank you so much for that and I do hope that with the bill 3 Uh, the Compassionate Care Act, as well as with all of the talk that's going on with long-term care, that all of this is looked at to kind of re-image it, remodel it. So we have a much better um, understanding going forward. And um, lastly, I just wanted to ask you in terms of with using as well, nurse practitioners more so in long-term care, because right now different regions of the province have different ways in which um, to use nurse practitioners, some are dispatched from hospitals, and you're working at two different facilities. So, how would you s- see that, you know, going forward as to how that should possibly be?
1: Um, well, in terms of the 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 role um, that I have in long-term care and what I've been able to do or the impact that I've been, that I've had here, I first want to say that so. I've got an amazing uh, medical director and, and Dr. Michelle Thomas, um, who is um, so conscientious in what she does and supportive of what she does. And she said to me soon after working here was, you know, Mike, you've really made a difference in what we're able to provide here in long-term care. And I said, I said what I've seen isn't, I said, thank you. I said, but I don't think it's me I said, I think it's just that in long-term care, we've created a position where you've got a provider that works Monday to Friday, nine to five. And I said, in the rural, typically in how long-term care works in Ontario is like northern nursing stations. It's nursing working on the floors, identifying an issue, calling a doc at home or on evenings and weekends and saying, I've got a problem. I think the problem is this. They get an order for a medication and hopefully it solves the problem. Right, So having someone in the building, whether that's a GP or whether that's an NP, makes a huge difference on the management of patients that are happening at that time, because we can assess and figure out what's going on in the building. So because of that, um, I'm able to deprescribe or reduce a lot of medication, unnecessary medication that people are on in long-term care, because I've got the time where I can do that. Um, I can and have decreased hospital transfer immensely. So in terms of, or preventing inappropriate hospitalization because of being able to have those conversations with family and talking about goals of care and risk benefit of certain treatments. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough because I worked in a tertiary uh, emergency department for so long to take people through the, so this is what this diagnostic test is gonna show us. And these are the three probably best possibilities or three worst possibilities and based on what that information means how is it going to change our management and is this mean that now we are going to start chemo radiation in our when we're 99 years old or that we're going to consult a neurosurgeon because you're going to have some type of invasive surgery or we're going to do you know you know we're going to consider intensive care um, admission for three to five days of intubation because This is possibly going to extend their life, but not change their quality of life. Those, those conversations are really difficult to have, but because I'm here, I'm able to have those conversations. I think that's why I make an impact on preventing hospital transfer. It's the acute on chronic, um, um, disease management. I think that's the biggest thing. So everyone here essentially, um, you know, in terms of the trajectory, that's always sort of on a downward slope, but depending on what's going on in terms of all of the things that can happen in terms of infectious disease, um, pneumonias, uh, falls, um, trauma in relation to falls, uh, pain management, the things that I can do at the time um, makes a huge difference in, in addressing people's needs thoughtfully, um, and fixing and or alleviating a lot of symptoms um, immediately that helps, that gives right, that care to the residents that need it to the most, but to the families that see that that's happening at that moment versus waiting, you know, for the nurse to call the physician or waiting for the physician to come in on their scheduled day when they can come in. There's so many other variables to that, but the most important part of me being in long-term care is my effect on palliative care. And I had no idea what to expect or what I was coming into in long-term care. And there's so many people here doing such great work in palliative care, but to help formalize a process, to help teach about palliative care, to access early palliative care and to make changes earlier and not later and not in crisis and to help people go through that and preparing for the future, just the psychology around that that I didn't think would be part of my role ever or something that I would have to learn and get really good at but I would say that's the my biggest role in here is um, you know preventing death in hospital having those discussions around it and helping people die well Um, and it's an honor for me uh, to do that and it's not easy but I have the time where I can do that I think it's essential that I don't know how long-term care runs without having a dedicated provider in the building for all of the needs and all of the things that happen in here. So, you know, it should be the mandate of every home in the province that has either that position that's for, that, uh, for um, our physician colleagues and, and or for NPs and or a combination of those things because there's just so many things that we can do to augment the system that actually saves the system. That improves the system that benefits the system and with some minor tweaks on helping with the human resource piece makes that system so much more robust and helps to achieve those things i don't think it's that complicated but for sure it needs to be supported in in different ways to make it work well so um, again when i get to stand up at a conference or in front of a committee or when I'm teaching again, and I'm in, in, front, in front of uh, my master's students, and I can talk about your role as a nurse practitioner and what your impact is in long-term care. I thought I had big impact in Emerge, but not like I do uh, working in long-term care. And I would never change that. And that's the part I thought, oh, you know, long-term care, this is gonna be great. It's gonna be a, a stepping stone for me. I'll get my experience and it'll help me to do, be, you know, help my experience and learn before I, you know, do my next thing. Um, but um, I am hooked. Um, I am in so deep uh, that there's so many things that um, need to be augmented and helped and fixed and supported. That um, this is my new, this is my passion. This is what I will, this is what I will, what I will do, and hopefully improve the system enough that I'm able to reap those rewards, if I can say that.
0: No, absolutely. No, thank you so much for that. And I'm really grateful that you're able to come on and speak uh, to on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles about palliative care and end of life. I think we've learned a lot uh, of what you've uh, indicated, what the role of the nurse practitioner would be with that. So again, I just wanna thank you so much, Michael, for your time, for coming on. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, it's an honor.
0: You're welcome.